Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Geography. My name is Peter Ekman, host on this channel. Uh, it's a channel on the New Books Network. Today we are joined by Caitlin DeSilvi, author of a book called Curated Decay, Heritage Beyond Saving. It was published in 2017 by the University of Minnesota Press. Caitlin joins us today from England, in fact, from Cornwall, um, where she's an associate professor of cultural geography at the University of Exeter. Caitlin, how are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. How's everything over in Exeter? Is that where you reside? Uh, I'm actually even farther south than Exeter. I'm down um, in the little boot that sticks out at the bottom of England, Cornwall. So uh, we're about two hours away from Exeter, okay. near Falmouth, Cornwall. Yeah. All right. It's, it's a, a landscape that, that figures in the book itself in diverse ways. Um, before we get... Uh, too far into the book, um, I should introduce it um, in, a, in a general way. It's a it's a pointed intervention in a set of debates um, regarding heritage, um, what's typically called conservation or preservation. Sylvia offers a an alternative and very carefully chosen vocabulary to wade through some of these debates. It's a it's a very practical intervention that cuts across six or seven at least, um, very specific empirical cases. It's also a, a many-sided meditation on the very terms by which we we conduct these debates. Curated decay is the title. Uh, decay ends up becoming a crucial term in the, in the analysis, and I think it's a term that the author works um, – very diligently to, to figure in a, a I think a, a less negative key than existing uh, conversations have sort of presumed uh, traditional understandings of heritage preservation and and more self-consciously critical approaches to those to those topics. Um, it's an affirmative book in many ways on moral, ethical, political grounds. Um, and it's a highly distinctive entry into a number of ongoing debates um, in and beyond cultural geography. So I'm very much looking forward to getting into the substance of the book. Um, before we do that, I wonder if you could take a few minutes to tell us about yourself, um, your biography, uh, personally and intellectually, where you've been um, institutionally, and what... Uh, gave rise to this book. Okay. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Um, well, I grew up in New England. Um, I was born in Manhattan, but um, was a child of sort of quasi-back-to-the-land uh, professionals, so grew up in Vermont. Um, and actually have come to realize that some of the sensibilities of growing up in a sort of third growth grown over landscape that has a lot of ruined farmsteads in it actually maybe had something to do with the way I think about things. Um, but I 
left Vermont when I went to university. Um, I was an undergraduate at Yale University in the late 80s, early 90s, and they didn't have any geography discipline there, but I cobbled together a senior paper, which I think was probably my introduction to cultural geography, went and studied a uh, case study in Montana around sacred land and oil and gas exploration, trying to understand how people think about the sacred in relation to landscape. There was a long interval when then I left academia. I was living in Montana. I was doing community activism. I was kind of dipping my toes in historic preservation in various ways. And then I sort of became an academic fully uh, when I returned uh, um, to study as a master's student in cultural geography at the University of Edinburgh Um, and then went on to do a PhD at the Open University, which allowed me to come back to Montana and get stuck into the story of a derelict homestead that I had been involved in helping to save, actually, um, near Missoula, Montana. So that was my sort of period of study and then... um, was back in Montana for a couple of years living on that homestead as a caretaker. Um, but for the past 10 years, I've been living solidly in uh, Cornwall, England, um, and I've been working for the University of Exeter that whole time um, and kind of taking some of the ideas that I was playing with in Montana and testing them out in different places um, here and um, in other parts of Europe as well, um, really thinking about how we frame dereliction and decay and uh, trying to recover something more positive and productive out of those processes, as Peter suggested. Um, yeah, so so that's who I am. Sort of, I, I think, b- born a geographer, but only came late to the, the discipline, if you will. Yeah, it's, it's a fairly uh, uh, common winding path for a lot of American geographers in the making, Yale being one of numerous uh, August universities that had geography departments but closed them down at some point in the 20th century. So we we find our way one way or another, and it's, it's actually nice that your uh, repairing to England allowed you to get back to Montana and vice versa. Um, that's great. Um, I think we can get into some of the general concerns of the book. Um, I, I, I don't think it'll be um, necessary or, or, or prudent necessarily to, to um, do equal justice to everyone of the uh, case studies, there are a couple that I would like to um, sort of pick apart. Um, before we do, um, as a matter of sort of general um, orientation, um, as I say, your, your 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 take on these questions of heritage decay, um, I, I read this as a very affirmative book ultimately. But you are positioning yourself pretty clearly against um, a set of orientations um, and a set of uh, sort of freighted uh, bits of terminology. And and the title of the book and the titles of the chapters um, give some sense of this. You're arguing for heritage beyond saving. You're arguing for something called um, post-preservation, urging uh, readers and practitioners to look past something called loss. You're arguing for a form of care without conservation, um, and at one point in the analysis, you um, you, you float the, the notion of non-intervention. So there's this sort of residual vocabulary of saving, preservation, uh, mantras of loss, conservation, and of course, uh, practice of intervention. So I wonder if you could characterize um, 
these existing understandings that you are sort of writing against? What is wrong with those, and how and why um, do you differ? Yeah, I mean, I think probably the most uh, most important thing is to sort of redefine your question a bit, actually, because I guess I would think about what I'm doing in the book as um, placing myself in relation to some of those orthodoxies and sort of assumptions about heritage practice, but not necessarily against them, uh, and really trying to tease out some of the tensions between saving and preservation and letting go and non-intervention, as you said. Um, and as you, I think, have alluded to, the, the book is radically site-specific. <laughs> um, so I make sense of these ideas through very detailed explorations of, of very particular places. And I am the first to admit that actually uh, this is not a blanket suggestion for how we need to sort of uh, rethink heritage practice as much as it is a, an invitation to in certain places where there are interesting things happening um, in relation to perhaps renaturalization or decay or ruination we can actually accept those processes as legitimate and as worthy of en engagement and interpretation and someone recently um, in response to the book talked about the book maybe giving us space to breathe and not feel like we always have to rush in to rescue places and save them, but recognizing that there can be value sometimes in backing off and pausing in trying to appreciate some of the ways that places are changing and have been changing in the past and that that change actually can be a real um, engine for engaging people's imagination and that's one of the things I tried to do in the book is to point out that it's not just that we sort of uh, want to step away and, and uh, allow these places to carry on without us. Um, there's actually very much a focus on how we may attend to these processes of decay and, and um, transformation in various ways and also recover certain cultural and ecological histories from our uh, attention to these these places and so interestingly some of the best conversations I've had since the book has come out have been with heritage practitioners um, and people who are professionally responsible for these places and the sense that they've given me is that they're really grateful that they are given permission to actually this book gives them permission to acknowledge feelings that they have had in relation to the places that they care for um, for the whole of their professional careers, but that often it's very diff difficult to articulate that and to acknowledge that. Um, so, yeah, it's a sort of, it's quite sympathetic, actually, I think, to the challenges that, that um, face people who have to care for heritage sites and, and, um, and really tries to work with their perspectives as much as sort of uh, uh, trying to suggest my own. That's fantastic. That's, that's very well said. Um, it's... Uh a very difficult set of middle grounds, um, set of blurred or blurrable uh, boundaries between different domains of uh, practice that you are seeking out. And I take seriously um, what you what you say about the, the essentially cited nature of the uh, book and this uh, uh, alternative to you know, some sort of covering general theory of of ruination, of preservation, or any of these. Other um, uh, uh, keywords. Um, so, in, in that spirit, I think it would make sense to get um, fairly 
thickly into a couple of these cases. We learn quite a bit about every one of these places. Um, we begin in Montana. There are a number of sites um, um, in England. You uh, duck down to continental Europe to um, an, an ironwork site in the Ruhr Valley of, of Germany. Uh, the analysis moves around, and, and you perceptibly move around with it, which I think is um, uh, a really welcome aspect of the text. Um, we, your, your encounters with these places are front and center. Um, I wonder if we could go to Montana and sort of start there, this, uh, this homestead, not too far from the city of Missoula, um, where you, um, in, in, in the first, the first case-based chapter, chapter two, for those um, following along or those prospective readers of the book, uh, where you encounter all sorts of what you call ambiguous matter um, that seems to uh, sort of resist recovery, resist identity in any traditional sense. Maybe you could talk a bit about that site and how it gave rise to the larger uh, train of thought that you follow through the book. Sure. Um, it is a very important site for my thinking around these ideas. Um, I came to it originally um, not as a, an academic or a researcher, um, but as a, uh, you know, really as a neighbor. Um, it, it, it is a little former subsistence farm, which is tucked into the foothills north of Missoula, Montana, so only about a mile away, um, mile and a half if you wiggle up the tiny roads to get there but it, it's sort of hidden um and i came across it um in 1997 when i was uh, working with a group of people to glean apples from the old apple orchard up there um and it had recently been acquired by the city but they had no plans to do anything with this um it was a jumble of old sheds and barns and houses um that had been lived in at various points by one family um and i went up there to glean apples and was completely captivated by this place and really felt sort of infected by its magic. Um, and at that point, I was a sort of neighborhood activist and was doing a lot of sort of community organizing and so had this sort of impulse to to try and secure the future of this place. And so I guess maybe the paradox here is that um, this story begins for me with an act of saving, really. Um, they, the original plan for this, the structures at this homestead site was actually for the fire department to use them in a test burn and uh, to just raise them to the ground um, because it was a parcel of land that had been bought as public open space and there wasn't really a place for this derelict farm in there. So... Over the course of a couple of years, I worked with some friends um, and collaborators to convince the city to hold on to this homestead. But I also, in the process, became the sort of uh, default caretaker of the site um, and the curator of its remains, of which there were many. So all these buildings were just crammed with detritus from you know, decades of living. And I started to sift through them. And I think the seed of the ideas that I carried into the book came when I realized that actually many of the things that I was encountering, I was finding really perplexing and because I couldn't figure out what category they belonged to. So it was things like boxes of books that um, had been stashed 
in uh, the old milk house where they used to process milk. Um, and it was a box of books that maybe had been sitting there for 60 years and uh, the mice had moved into the box and they were shredding the text. And so when I opened up the box, um, there was a scatter of words, but also mouse droppings, leaves, um, insect wings. Um, and it was a sort of stew <laughs> of nature culture. And um and the books were, you know, I could have pulled the books out and said, you know, all right, this is a book. I'm saving the book. And then the rest of it I probably would have just burnt or um, or brought to the landfill, which happened to be across the road. But um, in the end, I insisted, well, I decided that I was just going to sit with this puzzle and and actually try to understand it. And that was how the Ph.D. project came about, is that I kind of had a very light touch curation of this site Um while I was there in the late 90s and went away and got my master's in cultural geography and I had felt like then I had the intellectual resources to go back to this site and actually let it be what it was and make sense of it in its decay and through its decay um, and through the changes that were happening in relation to its material culture. And so spent those years really trying to form a theory that would allow me to respect the past that had you know, the, the histories in this place, but also not try to sterilize them or to consolidate them in any way, but allow those sort of material histories um, to still intermingle with sort of ecological histories and futures. <laughs> um, it all became very dense and uh, and a little bit unmanageable, but I think all PhD projects are a bit like that, and uh, and then eventually you come out the other end. <laughs> um, but the site remained really central to my thinking. But I think what's interesting about that site now is that it's actually become quite well used. It's been now, I mean, I suppose we're working on 20 years, <laughs> um, and it now has formal caretakers. It has public programs. A lot of the buildings have been rehabilitated and um, restored. So it's no longer the derelict uh, magic place that I stumbled across, but maybe there's a few elements of that left. Um, and I think it's just it was a very interesting place for me to think with at, a, at an important time in my life. Um, that, that comes through. I mean, a number of the, um, I think, really crucial conceptual resources that you uh, release as the chapters unfold um, really crystallize in that chapter. And um, again, with, without this all, um, I suppose, adding up to some, uh, again, covering general theory of these things, um, you, you, you weave particular theorists in and out with what I think is a very light touch, um, a diverse set of thinkers, um, conceptual resources from Mary Douglas, Georges Bataille, uh, Peter Sloterdyke, Heidegger, Tim Ingold, and other more contemporary figures. Um, these uh, work together to, as you say, uh, render this uh, this material culture, this this object matter, um, as a much more eventful space um, than I, I suppose is typically understood. And you propose that we can think about decay as the uh, release of 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 meaning, arguably, uh, sort of material. Uh, release of heritage. Um, and this poses, of course, uh, pretty considerable challenges for the prose. Um, this has been sort of an ongoing ongoing challenge in recent years as people have been striving to um, animate or vitalize the material world in these ways, just picking the right uh, picking the right verbs to uh, render landscapes and buildings and objects dynamic in this way. So I should just say at the level of uh, prose. It is um, a very, very 
very lyrical chapter that opens on to what, uh, in my reading, is uh, just a really, really satisfying book. Um, the next chapter takes us to England, to a spot called Mullion, uh, Mullion Cove, Mullion Harbor. Um, I think both names are sort of in circulation here. And in this chapter, you take up these uh, these challenges regarding narrative, regarding what you call uh, the storying of this particular site. So I wonder if we could um, uh, think on Mullion for uh, for a few minutes here. Uh, what 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 arguments are you making here? T tell us about the site itself and some of the changes that has been undergoing. But what sort of argument are you making about the um, sort of the ambivalence of narrative and the failures of language, and I think also the ways in which those end up uh, enabling you in certain ways and not not only stymieing you. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you pick up on that um, element of it, because I think um, in a sense that chapter is is an argument with myself, um, because uh, I got involved with Mullion when I moved to Cornwall in um, 2007, and it's a sort of archetypal uh, little Cornish harbor, um, stone, you know, mostly granite and serpentine built, um, built in the 1890s. But I was aware of it because um, the Preservation Magazine actually in the States had published a, a cover story about this harbor because it, in 2006, the year before, the National Trust, um, who owned and managed the harbor, had come out to say, actually, we can't hold on to this harbor forever. Um, we're going to need to recognize that storm storms are increasing, sea levels rising. Um, this harbor is one of many that are threatened, and so we're just going to accept that eventually, at some point in the future, it's not going to be possible for us to hold on to this, and we're going to need to um, let it go, you know, dismantle it, um, roll back, you know, managed retreat is the term that was in circulation at the time. And this was, it was a bit of a poster child for a wider policy decision that the National Trust had made at that time about recognizing and adapting to coastal change. Um, so I had picked this up before I came to Cornwall and then immediately, you know, headed over to Mullion on a very stormy day <laughs> uh, to take a look at the harbor myself. And then uh, that ended up sort of opening up a conversation with the National Trust and with people who live in the area that has continued to this day. And it's a story that is still running in, um, in many ways. Um, so my original project there was actually about um, trying to tell a story about the history of that harbor that would surface its how dynamic actually it was as a as a feature. Um, so trying to talk about how it was constructed, the stone that was used to build it, where it came from, how since it had been constructed, it had fallen apart in various ways, sometimes minor and sometimes spectacular, um, had been rebuilt in various, in, a, in different forms over the years. Um, but the way that it had arrived at this point in the present, where it appears to be timeless, it appears to be stable um you wouldn't know anything about these histories of sort of collapse and repair um from encountering it so i'd done a sort of exercise in writing a reverse chronology through its quite turbulent past and i thought okay if people read this story then they'll understand that actually this harbor isn't meant to be here forever that actually it's dynamic and changing and mutable and and then we just need to embrace that but then when i came to write the chapter in the book several years later um I actually 
returned to the harbor and struck up a friendship with someone who helped me see this challenge around the harbor's future in a very different way. And so the story is about my sort of amiable disagreement with a man who was using the history of the harbor to try and argue for its preservation. And this was a moment when the harbor was more imperiled, perhaps, than it had ever been. We had huge storms here in uh, winter of 2013-14. And the harbor was very near collapse. But what happened that winter was that actually the vulnerability and the threat actually... uh, it brought people to reinvest their energy in saving the harbor. It didn't have, it, it didn't encourage them to recognize that it, they needed to step away and let it go. It actually brought people down to pick up the stones that had been knocked off by the storms to reassemble the harbor to, um, and so in that chapter, I was trying both to question my earlier project <laughs> around rewriting the history of the harbor to bring it into a different future, um, which I'd called an anticipatory history. So I was questioning that, but I was also trying to tell the story of my conversations with this, um, the man who I had met, who was really, in a sense, sort of had very different opinion than I did about what should happen to the harbor, but we shared um, a fascination with it as a site, and we both were telling stories about it in various ways. And the chapter arrives at this sort of nebulous point, just saying, you know, it's about about these tensions in place and the way that we move into the future and accept change is sometimes very uneven and involves this sort of slipping backwards and reassembling and then recognition and then moving forward and willingness to accept change and accept loss and transformation is not something that proceeds on a sort of level path (laughs) Um, and that's happening all across the you know the coastlines here where I'm living but also I think increasingly starting to happen um, in other places as well including the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah your your interlocutor at uh, Mully and the Preservationist um and Bob, I believe, um, yeah. he, he shows up later in the book, um, I think in the final chapter. And, um, yeah, not, not always an easy relationship, uh, skeptical um, uh, in, in diverse ways. Um, but out of that interaction, I think something, something is, is gained in this very specific way in which you sort of entwine yourself uh, with, the, with the site. Um, I should say that this... Um, Particular chapter, chapter three on on, on Mullion, is also one of the more um, formally uh, uh, experimental chapters um, at the level of the prose. You 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 intercut your analysis with lines from a uh, particular T.S. Eliot poem, um, which is taking up some of these same themes, um, uh, if obliquely. I wonder if you could um, uh, explain how you came to fold that in with your um, uh, experienced uh, sort of quasi-ethnographic uh, material and what that does for you. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I, I think that it gets at something about the way that I think with language that I find actually paradoxically hard to articulate. <laughs> but sometimes I think I find poetry a much more... Uh, it opens up perspectives and it acts as a hinge in my writing to shift me on to other ways of seeing that um, I can't do through straight um, sort of academic prose, certainly. And the, the sort of role of of certain kinds of uh, verse, you know, and, and poetry in the in the book, it, 
has been queried in interesting ways by people since I published it. And you, know, you hadn't mentioned, but each of the chapters actually opens with a little epigraph. Um, and what is fascinating to me is that a lot of the people who've gotten in touch with me or who've written reviews of the book um, have actually quoted um, excerpts from poems that they feel like resonate with with the book so um perhaps my favorite example is um a couple in ontario who sent me an email after hearing um me talk on the bbc and they had been studying robert frost in a um in an evening class and his poem directive where he talks about visiting these sort of upland ruined villages in in new england um had put them in mind of what I was talking about and so they sent me this really lovely email um, and sort of offered me the poem as a point of connection um, and that's been a sort of perennial theme actually is people sort of <laughs> coming to me either with stories of their own about specific places or with sort of offerings um, uh, and I, th I find that incredibly rewarding, actually, because it, it suggests to me that there's sort of a conversation that the book has opened up, which is operating on a different level than academic texts usually would operate, you know, that, 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 and it's resonating and tying into cultural sensibilities that people can only articulate through other forms of language, I suppose. Um, I'm not sure I want to explain it any further than that, but the, but the, but the role that the T.S. Eliot poem played in the relation to that chapter it just it felt sort of like there was this synchronicity between you know what he'd been trying to articulate in in that in the passages that i selected and, and what i was encountering in that site and i just found it very useful for kind of providing some structure but also some a sort of little engine of other narrative in the chapter yeah and the way you the way you weave it into the to the text is not just you know sort of a uh, mechanical application or a mere mirroring of the larger themes you 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 use these lines in really interesting and su surprising sometimes jarring ways really to break up the narrative to to disrupt it uh disassemble reassemble the narrative in in certain ways um i should also say that um this chapter and the one before it and every other chapter in the book is introduced not only with a textual epigraph but with um a single uncaptioned photo as well. Um, there are sort of stirrings of Zabald in, 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 in certain ways, the way the, uh, the image articulates with the text. Um, I wonder if you could uh, say something about the use of imagery. It's not a heavily visual book. It could have been one, um, but they, I think they do serve a crucial role in uh, setting the stage and in posing certain questions that the chapters may or may not answer um mm. yeah um uh, i they, they do there, there is a sort of um a conversation maybe another conversation with myself that i was having in relation to the images because i remember um quite deliberately when i was thinking about how to assemble the book resisting this idea of making it quite heavily illustrated and a few of the people who read early drafts for me said, oh, this is fantastic. You just imagine all these wonderful photographs that you could, you know, include. And I have wonderful photographs of all of these places. Um, and but one of the things I'm trying to do in the book, which I sort of touch on, uh, is actually to resist the impulse to aestheticize these places as ruins um, and to really try to be as specific as I could be about 
the processes that were going on, whether they were sort of particular kinds of plants that were colonizing different sites or whether it was in the actual um, chemical processes that were involved in breaking down concrete. You know, and I'm not a scientist, so I had to just kind of go out on a limb sometimes when I was doing that. But I sensed that if I had included a lot of images, then they would have then stood in. I wouldn't have had to force myself to work as hard in the prose to to be precise <laughs> um, because I could have been a little bit lazy <laughs> and just let the images do some of that work for me. Um, so the images that I chose as opener, you know, they're, they're black and white. They're not, you know, it's not a sort of uh, slick reproduction there. They, they were placeholders, really. Like I, I saw them as sort of little open doors to each of the sites, which really just tried to evoke something of their character but um but they are not the illustrations of those places i mean and so it was it was more of a test for myself whether i could write in a way that allowed the reader to see those places um i suppose and engage with them and not use images um to fill that in mm-hmm. and and to be clear these, these are photos that you uh you took yourself yes all of them are okay um Fantastic. I, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. What you've uh, been saying about the, the image uh, doing one kind of work versus the illustration uh, you know, numbered, captioned, uh, doing um, doing its own kind of work that that would have been an avenue, um, but it's not the one that that you've gone. I think it makes a lot of uh, conceptual sense to have used the images in this way. Um, um. Let me just follow up. And I, I was writing the book at a time when there was, it was sort of peak ruin porn, um, sort of urban decay, yes. you know. And it, <laughs> and so I had actually had to resist a certain overlay from my publisher to try and spin it that way, um, as well. Um, but I was very um, clear that that was not the kind of book I was writing. Um, <laughs> and so, and I think partly my reluctance to sort of, illust- you know, add quite a lot of illustrations and caption, you know, with, was partly about that. I wanted these places, it, in some ways it was actually out of respect for the places um, because most, well, the, the ones that are public have been heavily imaged <laughs> in various ways already. So if anyone wanted to see them, you know, all you need to do is type Orford Ness into Google and uh, you, you, you can see that. But I, that wasn't what I was trying to do. I was trying to do something very different. Precisely. Um, as far as the next few chapters, in the interest of time, uh, again, chapters uh, four through seven, uh, for those following along or uh, looking ahead to one day encountering the book, um, chapters four through seven take us to a, a series of sites, um, to a, uh, a weapon site at, at, at the place you've named, Orford Ness, um, where, where this official policy of what's called non-intervention has been um, adopted. Um, chapter five takes us to um, the Ruhr Valley of Germany, uh, where you explore themes of entropy um, in diverse theoretical ways. Uh, chapter Six cuts across a few different sites, including uh, Vermont, landscapes you know uh, quite well. And um, Chapter 7 takes us back to Orford Ness in England, but to um, to a particular lighthouse out on the coast, um, posing a set of questions about um, the extent to which we can uh, speak of the built environment as having something like a mortality um, 
and 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 what kinds of uh, rituals and, and and practices might might be adequate to uh, to honor that. Um, each one of these chapters, and you can you can uh, return to these at will as as we move ahead. Each one of these chapters um, is highly site specific and takes up really a different uh, conceptual uh, line of questioning. Um, these sites are, however, I, I think implicitly at least um, Im embedded in a, a slightly broader set of um, theoretical debates that are going on within, but not only within uh, uh, geography. And for, for, for readers who aren't directly engaged in questions of heritage, preservation, uh, conservation, take your pick as far as uh, terminology, um, I think this book will appeal. I mean, I, I know it has appealed already to um, people who are engaged in thinking about ruination, broadly conceived. Um, uh, you um, you seem to favor the term decay more, more than ruin, if, if, if that conventional language uh, seems to be sort of a fix, uh, uh, a form of stasis in, in certain ways. So I think it taps into those debates. I'd be happy to to hear more about um, your uh, your interventions there, um, but I think also just at at, at the broadest level, um, the book engages with um, some fairly well developed debates over the last 10, 15 years or so around uh, materiality. It's often called the new materialisms, vital materialisms, uh, object-oriented approaches that has a, a slightly more uh, uh, slightly more parochial meaning, I think, um, but ways of reformulating really some of the core questions, core theoretical questions that geographers have uh, always been asking about the, the material world and our relationship to it. Um, so I wonder if you could um, comment on sort of how you, how you see your um, positioning with respect to these uh, ongoing cross-cutting uh, theoretical conversations. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, um, these are definitely conversations that I feel like I'm sort of at the edge of, if not in the middle of. Um, but my engagement with that theory in the book is um, is kind of indirect, actually. Um, and it's interesting um, conversation that we had at the, um, the AAG, Association of American Geographers Conference, last year about the book. Um, the person who was um, chairing this book review forum was celebrating it as a sort of uh, new materialist text, you know, which was doing this sort of experimental work and narrating through these processes in ways that um, were sort of um, opening up new possibilities, I suppose, you know, the way he saw it for um, for how we do geography in relation to these ideas. And, um, and I, I think... Um, it wasn't a, my, my intention, in a sense, was um, to follow the materials, and then if the theory kind of swings in <laughs> behind me, great. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, that might sound odd, but I, I guess because of the way I made sense of these places was quite intuitive in the end. Um, I'm grateful for the theoretical perspectives that let me find ways of articulating what I found there. But it's a sort of accidental theory, if you will. Um, 
think one of the tensions in the book that I find still interesting, even having written it, is that, I mean, in, in some sense, I was, my early training is as a very sort of, you know, humanist scholar in a way, you know, sort of writing <laughs> sort of expository prose, you know, I was trained how to write a good essay and it, not the sort of, and I think trained out of me was this sort of need to add in well, it's the voice of the the writer, I suppose, that carries the storytelling. And so, I, while I do integrate ideas from this much wider theoretical milieu, I think it, there is a sort of faith in in the voice of the narrator that comes through. And I think that, in a way, sometimes what can happen when I do that is that actually, I mean, one of the things that I sense happening is that these sites actually become sort of dehumanized as well because I'm paying so much attention to these processes that are going on and to the sort of non-human inhabitants that are intervening in them in various ways um, that I I don't stop to check myself and to tell those wider stories about the sort of the politics and the policy and the practices that that actually frame these sites because I'm so close to what I'm trying to describe. So I guess I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there are sort of trade-offs <laughs> um, there, and this wasn't it wasn't intended as an experiment in sort of new materialist narration, although it, it might be read that way. Um, in a way, it was a challenge for me to write in a way that was faithful to the way that I feel like my voice uh, is best used, but but also to make some pretty serious critical and and sort of applied points inside that yeah that that makes a lot of sense i mean the the, the last thing i want uh, the last thing i want to do is to uh, for, force you to elaborate a sort of uh, theoretical scaffolding um before our eyes i think you've uh, very accurately captured the spirit the uh narrative strategies and just the 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 mood in which uh this book unfolds um there is, you know, it, it, it is, it is rich with theoretical leads, um, but they reside, as, as I read it, sort of in individual turns of phrase, which uh, appear and disappear, um, and that coalesce um, for a page or two at a time, um, but can just as easily be uh, translated into another language as 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 you go forward. Um, all of which I think together bring out the the sort of suspicion about. Um, I don't know the, the sort of enforced solidity of landscapes and their pasts. Um, what you describe as these these perforated places. Um, how to um, how to capture their texture and think about them in time. Um, think about their temporality, their openings onto a whole different set of futures, as you say. Um, so I think it, it is a, um, a theoretically attached book, but is not in any uh, straightforward sense a work of theory. Um, I, I, I open this line of questioning just because I, I know this is how many geographers will read and have read this book. Um, just wanted to get a sense of your uh, positioning in a sense. Um, one last set of concerns um, as we sort of draw down here. We've been talking for a little while. Um, in the, the last chapter, chapter eight, you take up the theme of care uh, without conservation. Um, this theme of care ends up seeming uh, crucial to your analysis. Indeed, one of the 
one of the main uh, one of the main motivations behind behind the analysis profoundly ethical questions um, questions about the vulnerability of landscapes and lives um, questions of uh, the rights of these ruined or decaying otherwise dynamic landscapes um, I wonder if you could comment on how you see the uh, the ethical balances of this book uh, through through this framework of care uh, or another of your of your choosing yeah I mean I think it, this question of how we come to these places and how we can make sense of them um, while setting aside the impulse to reassemble them or restore them or preserve them in various ways is, is really interesting to me and I think um, one of the points I try to explore in that final chapter that I, I think there's probably still quite a lot of work to do on is the sense that the reason why we try and stabilize things um, and to sort of badge them as part of our history, collective or personal histories is partly because it, they help bolster our identity. You know, we sort of this self-identification between the things that we care for and the things that we understand to be part of making us who we are and that if we are going to think about other ways of caring that allow those things to carry on with their changes and to disassemble perhaps or become disarticulated, then our sense of self might need to become more loose and open in relation to those things and a sort of recognition of our own vulnerability and our identities as actually can be inhering in these processes rather than inhering in permanence and preservation, I think is interesting to think with. And there are some quite significant ethical considerations that come into play there. Um, I mean, there's sort of, I, I in a bit of a cheat, I close the book with a set of questions that I haven't managed to answer or even to actually ask very effectively in the book around who gets to decide, you know, what we let go and what we hold on to. What does this approach mean in relation to places that might have quite contested histories where you have, you, uh, people don't agree about what should be saved or where this approach might be used to delegitimize or disinvest people who have an investment in a particular past um, and preserving that past um, what happens when an approach like this gets used to justify um, sort of a lack of investment and places that are worthy of preservation and should be saved actually are let go um, so this is the kind of stuff I'm working on now you know um, and actually working with practitioners and people and um, historic England and historic environment Scotland and talking to people in the National Park Service and trying to, you know, these are people who recognize fully that it's inevitable that there are some things that we will need to contemplate letting go, but um, the policy that aligns with that philosophy isn't there yet. And so there's an ethics to that that, you know, it's a sort of, you know, ethics that's going to get played out over the coming decades, I think, in relation to, you know, this question of who decides and how they decide. Mm -hmm. Well, we've made our way through the better part of the the, the book. Um, you've been very generous in uh, giving us your time here, and I, I, I thank you for that. Um, now that we've done so, um, I wonder if you could say, you've, you've prefaced it um, a bit just now, I wonder if you could say what you've been working on and thinking about um, and reading and, and wondering and speculating about um, in the time since this book uh, was published? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, I'm very lucky because when the, right about when the book came out, I um, started working with colleagues on a, a four-year 
project called Heritage Futures, which is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council here in the UK. And I'm leading on a, um, a set of work which is looking at this question of transformation in relation to heritage sites. And so we're looking at different three different case studies sites um, where in various ways landscapes are changing radically and there is a recognition that that holding on to their you know that their heritage is going to be remade in various ways and so um, just to give you a brief sense one of those sites is actually a rewilding pilot project in the northeast corner of Portugal where there's a sort of deep history um, of animal-human cohabitation which is being brought into the future by reintroducing horses and various other animals. Another site is uh, here in Cornwall where we're looking at an extractive landscape where they've been um, extracting China clay which is a sort of decomposed granite and they've been doing this for couple centuries now but it's sort of becoming post-operational and we're trying to think about the transitions that happen in that landscape um, which is also full of quite a lot of ruined post-industrial structures that no one really has any plans for and then we're also going back to Orford Ness and really all these places we're trying to sort of ground test some of these ideas about how you can perpetuate sort of memory and a connection to the past without insisting on um, returning the physical form of a landscape to a past form, so really embracing change and transformation as part of making heritage futures. Thank you. That sounds very exciting. Um, it's a multi-year project. This could uh, manifest in any number of different forms, any number of uh, kinds of text, I suppose. So we can we can uh, wait and see what happens with that. Um, the present book that we've been discussing here. Um, been talking to the author, Caitlin DeSilvey, over at the University of Exeter in England. Uh, the book is titled Curated Decay, uh, Heritage Beyond Saving. It was put out in 2017 by the University of Minnesota Press. Uh, this is New Books in Geography, channel on the New Books Network. Uh, Caitlin, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, it was fascinating chatting with you about the book, and thank you very much for your thoughtful questions. Thanks a lot.